maybe when we get to heaven, God will let us all play that way. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to wait and do it the easy way instead of studying. I'm just going to get there and God can show me how to do that. So we thank you, Jeff and musicians. Take your Bible tonight and go to Psalm 149. Lord willing, we will finish up our study in Psalms uh, next week. Do you know how many messages we've covered the book of Psalms? This is number 204. So, uh, and, and we really have not done every single verse because you understand some of the chapters, it's about the same thing that we talk about, so you can uh, figure it out from the parts that we don't cover. But tonight we're going to be in Psalm 149. And this chapter, <clears throat> really the end of Psalms of the book is all about praise. And last week we saw that the, the writer called all of creation to praise God. And this week, this chapter really more is, is geared toward Israel. And uh, Look at the first four verses and you'll see as we begin to consider this passage. The psalmist said, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with dance. And let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. I think we covered just about all those ways of praise that sent the dance cards. We'll talk about that in a minute, okay? But uh, the, the psalmist called Israel uh, to praise God. Uh, and, and there's no specific reason given here. Um, it could be just a general call to praise or as some scholars think, Maybe it had something to do with God delivering them, a supernatural act for Israel, because God was always doing uh, marvelous things for them to take care of them in the face of their enemy and persecutions. Or it could have had to do with the Babylonian captivity. It really doesn't tell us, but the fact is they're called to praise. And the psalmist calls them to praise with some specifics, like in verse 1. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Now, a new song... <clears throat> is usually connected uh, to new blessings, meaning when God does something new or fresh or special, then, a, then it moves the heart to sing anew, to sing a new song, to praise him anew. And I think that's the context here pretty clearly. And an example might be, and we'll talk about it more in detail in a moment, when, when God opened the Red Sea and Israel went across and he closed the sea and he drowned the Pharaoh's army, Miriam, and then broke out in singing and praise, and they, and they actually sang a brand new song, and they sang a new song about God being the champion and God destroying the army. Well, the, the blessing drove the praise. The blessing moved the praise toward God, and they actually sang a new song about him. And then I thought about the church today, um, God's work in our lives. Lamentations chapter 3, listen, listen to this passage. You know this passage, verse 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed. Boy, never a truer statement in the world. Through his mercies were not consumed because his compassions fail not. The, the idea there is his, his compassions and his mercies are continual. They're, all, they're operating in our lives every day. And then in verse 23, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. In other words, God's mercies are new to us every day. They're new to us every morning. So if I could make the simple connection, <clears throat> because God's mercies are new to us every day, we should be singing anew to him every day. 
follow the thought process. We should be worshiping him anew every day. Now, not only should we as a church, as they were called to worship with a new song, not only should we individually worship anew every day. I mean, we understand that every day that we wake up is a gift from God. Every day that we wake up and have life and, and we can move around and we can do what we do is a gift by the grace of God. And so we should worship him for that. But it also, the, the writer here talks about the assembly of the saints in verse 1. And what he's talking about there is corporate worship. He's talking about when they come together as God's people to worship. And of course, they would have done that at a tabernacle. Uh, in David's time, where they would have, when Solomon built the temple, they would have worshipped at the temple corporately. And so the psalmist says, look, when you come together uh, corporately to give thanks, when you come together to worship God, do it with a new song. Now let me, let's think about the idea of a new song just a moment. If you want to, if you want to fire up a church, mess with the liturgical practices of the church, okay? If you, if you want to bring down the wrath of if you want to bring Christian wrath upon your head, you mess with how we do stuff normally, okay? And, and it'll get you. Let, let, me, let me give us some thoughts about this, on, you know, about what the psalmist is saying here. What does it mean, mean for the church to sing a new song? I would make several suggestions biblically from this text and others. Number one, we, we worship God corporately every week when we come in here, no matter how we do it, whether we sing a fast song, a slow song, a, a praise song, or a hymn. We do it because God's been good to us every day throughout the week. And Sunday is the first day of the week when the church met. And so we come, as they did right after Pentecost, and we meet on Sunday and we corporately worship God. So I would suggest to you that worship is really from the heart. And it matters not whether you're singing an old song or a new song, as long as your worship to God, the words of the song are doctrinally correct, and you're, and you're singing it to God to thank him for the blessings of the week. I would also suggest that when we worship God, we worship him with anticipation. We anticipate the good things that he's going to do based on what he did in the past. So, and here's where that comes into play. I know, because I've lived long enough, that every week's going to have its own unique challenges. And some of them I don't know about till I get there, right? I mean, things happen and you don't know that it's going to happen. And, you know, somebody walks in your office and, and, you know, puts this big problem on your for the answer. That kind of thing happens. I don't know those things are coming, but God does. And so I sing and worship him in anticipation of the fact that he's going to help me, that he's going to bless me through the week, no matter, no matter what I face. Now, I would say there, from this passage, I would say there are two meanings to a new song. And the first one is, we sing a song that we know with new application. For example, we sang Amazing Grace tonight. How many of y'all know Amazing Grace? Everybody. If you're around a Baptist church, you know Amazing Grace. You also know the song, How Great Thou Art. It's the, it's the Southern Baptist National Anthem, right? How, how great thou art. Every, every Southern Baptist church in the world sings How Great Thou Art many times. And, and for rightfully so, because God is great, and it's a great song, and it's wonderful. So we might sing a, what would be considered an old song. For instance, Victory in Jesus was written in 1939. And we could sing Victory in Jesus last week because we have Victory in Jesus. Well, I had Victory in Jesus this whole last week, so I could sing it again this Sunday with a new, uh, a new victory. You follow me what I'm saying? So we could sing 
what we would consider an old song, songs that we know that were written. We could sing them a different way. We could sing them with a new rhythm, a new whatever, but the words are the same, and we sing them with a new and fresh application. Now, if we come in here and we sing an old song, and we're just doing it, and we're not, and, we, and it's not from our heart. We might as, it doesn't matter what song you're singing because it's worship, right? And so we can sing an old song, but a new song also means steady yourself. It also means a new song, like new words and new, new rhythm and new a new song. That's where that's where we get in trouble sometimes. People, listen. In the life of this church. People have come to us and go, why do you sing them? Why do you sing this kind of song? You ought to sing all these kinds of songs. Or they'll come and do the opposite. They'll say, why do you sing all these kind of songs? Why don't you sing them kind of songs? Because it doesn't matter which kind we're singing, as long as we're singing it to Jesus, right? Now, Again, some people have personal preferences, right? Some people like like Southern Gospel, right? Right. I like Southern Gospel. Man, I, I like I like uh, the Gaithers and, I, and that. But there have been people who have come to this church who have said to me, who have said to me, "You can sing anything here but Southern Gospel. I can't. I can't handle it." Well, that to me, I don't understand that because I like Southern Gospel. But that person was like, you know, I can't, I can't do it. I can't handle it. You know, it's, it's country. It's like, you know, whatever. And then, of course, we've had other people say to us, I, if I sing one more praise hymn, my head's going to explode. You know, they come to me and they say, if we sing one more, you know, thing, <clears throat> I would suggest that as Christians, if that's what we're, if that's what we're concerned about, our emphasis, our, our emphasis is in the wrong place. Because... The psalmist said for Israel, sing to God with a new song. The main idea is freshness. Like God's blessed me this week. So it makes no difference whether it's a praise hymn or victory in Jesus or how great thou art. I can sing it to God genuinely because that's who he is. And so I think it's important for us to understand that in our, in our liturgical practices, I don't particularly enjoy going to a church that has all high, all high church music, you know, the organ blaring. And, you know, this just doesn't do a whole lot for me, but I can worship there, and I have worshiped there. Now, if I'm looking for a church, is that where I'm going to go? Yeah, well, you know, if God said go there, I would, but probably not. But it's really about worship. It's about what are we singing to God. So keep in mind when we talk about a new song, and the psalmist talks about a new song, we should be willing to embrace new songs and, and new worship. Uh, because the heart's what matters, as long as it honors God and, and worships him, okay? Now, the psalmist also says not only for them to come and sing a new song and all the context we just talked about, but he talks to them about, about praising God as their maker and their king, which is important. Verses 2 and 3, look at it. Let Israel, now he's speaking specifically to Israel, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion, Israel, be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. Now let's deal first with, uh, with God as the maker. Now he says, here's why you should worship God, because he's the maker. 
Now, last week we talked about God being the creator of all things, and that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about on a national level. <clears throat> Israel, the Hebrews exist as a distinct group of people because God made them. God picked them. God chose them as his nation. And, I, and there are people today who say God's done with Israel, and that's wrong. Israel is still God's people. They're still, the, and we'll see in a minute, they're still the apple of his eye. They're just set aside because of their disobedience. And they're set aside while God's dealing with the church. But when the church is raptured out of this world, Israel's coming back to the forefront, and God's going to do all of his dealings in the world through them because they're his nation. So what he says here is, hey, let's praise God because he made us. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, what do you find there? Abram, Abram, not Abraham yet, but Abram is in Ur of the Chaldees, and God comes to him and says, hey, I picked you. Come out of the land where your family is. Leave your family, leave your land, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Now think about that. God shows up. Abraham doesn't know who God is. He's a pagan. God introduces himself, said, I've got a plan for you. Leave your family, leave your land, and go where I'm going to show you. And Abraham did it. What do we call that? Faith, real faith, okay? So Abraham believed God, and God counted him for righteousness. So Abraham saved. He packs up his stuff and goes. Now, in the first four verses of Genesis 12, what does God say to Abraham? He makes a covenant with him. It's a, it's a covenant that God chose to make with him. Remember what God promised him? God said, I'm going to bless you like the world's never seen. Not exactly in these terms, but that's what he meant. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make your seed, your descendants, are going to be like the sand of the sea. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And those who bless you, I'm going to bless. And those who curse you, I'm going to curse. Our government better remember that. God said, you're, you're my man. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. So the psalmist says, let us praise God who created us, who made us as a nation, who let us go into Egypt, grew, brought us out, made us a nation, gave us the land. And probably for us, the most important part of that promise that God made to Abraham is this. God said to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Now that's us. Now that, that gets into the Gentiles, which unless you're t Jewish here tonight, it means you and me, okay? So what God said to Abraham was, not only am I going to make a nation out of you, but it is through you and through the nation that I'm going to create out of you, I'm going to make a blessing for the whole world. Now who's that blessing? Jesus Christ. Because it's through the Hebrews, through Israel, that Jesus came into the world to die for our sin, and he died not just for their sin, but for the sin of the whole world. So that's a pretty important covenant that God made with Abraham. And the psalmist said, we should praise God for that. And may I add, if you're saved tonight, we should praise God for that too. Lord, thank you for making a covenant with Abraham and making a nation that you brought the Savior into the world so that we could be saved. So we should also be thanking God for creating Israel. Now, the next thing he says is also be joyful or worship and praise God and be joyful in your king, in their king. Now, certainly for the psalmist, <clears throat> the greatest king they had up to that, really, up till now would be King David. Solomon wasn't as, as good as his dad, even though Solomon was wealthier and wiser. David was a man after God's own heart. So he's saying, you should thank God and praise God for David and for the Davidic line, because again, that's who the Savior's going to come through. But ultimately, 
ultimately they should be thankful for who? The son of David, who is Jesus Christ, who's going to sit on the throne of David and be the king forever. So what he's saying to them is, hey, this promise that God's given us, this promise that God gave Abraham and passed down to Isaac and Jacob and came to us as a nation, we should be thankful that God's going to do all this for us and we should, we should praise him. Now, remember this. Keep this in mind. When Jesus comes back at the end of the, at the, end of the, uh, the tribulation, he's going he's to bring us with him. And Jesus is going to destroy Antichrist's army and put Satan in a pit for a thousand years. And he's, he's going to put Antichrist in the lake of fire and the false prophet in the lake of fire. And Jesus is going to set up his throne in Israel. He's going to rule the world on the throne of David. And he, he's going to be a world dictator and rule with a rod of iron. He's going to rule in righteousness and justice. And I shared this a few weeks ago, I think, if I remember right. When God promised Abraham land, the, the land that God promised Abraham reaches from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. All the nations in between, all, all of that belongs to Israel. God said it does. Now, right now, there's a bunch of other countries living there. But when Jesus comes back and sets up the king in Israel, it's all going to be Israel. Those nations aren't going to live there anymore. And they're not going to have anything to say about it because God gave it to them. But here's the best part. God will rule the world, and the world will go there to worship him, will travel there to worship him. The psalmist is saying, rejoice over the king that's coming. Rejoice over the king who will lead in the fulfilling of the whole Abrahamic covenant. Jesus will lead Israel to prosperity they've never known before. They'll be the greatest nation in the world. They'll be the world leaders. Uh, and Jesus will exalt into that. Now let's deal with the one that I know you just can't wait for us to get to. Praise him with dance and instruments. I have heard this verse preached so many different ways to justify whatever you want to do in church that isn't funny. So let me give it a shot. You ready? What does it mean to worship God with dance? Exactly what it means. It means a dance. Look at verse 3 again. Let them praise him with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. Now in the Old Testament, dancing could be and was sometimes part of their worship. Let me read you two passages. Exodus 15, uh, God delivers Israel. They cross over the Red Sea. Listen to this, Exodus 15, 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, who was Aaron and Moses' sister, and notice she's a prophetess, okay? The sister of Aaron took the timbrel, a symbol, in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dance. So Miriam led the women to worship God, and we didn't read it here. Well, look at the, in verse 21. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. That's the new song they wrote about the Red Sea. And they're singing it, and they're dancing with symbols. okay? Do you remember also that David danced before the Lord? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is finally bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem to put it in the tabernacle. And he's so excited to have God's 
ark and the presence of God in the capital city, that in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Samuel 6, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of trumpets. So in those two passages, there was instruments, cymbals, trumpets, and people are dancing. And David, the king, is dancing with all of his might before the Lord. In fact, Saul's daughter that David married scolded him for dancing before the Lord. That's a different story. Now, what inquiring minds want to know is, should we be dancing around in the church when we're worshiping God? That's what everybody's thinking. Let me give you some, some thoughts about that. Then I'll tell you what I think about it. Number one, it's not forbidden anywhere. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, thou shalt not dance before the Lord. Not in the Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament. Secondly, then we want to ask ourselves, is there a New Testament biblical standard for worship in the New Testament church? How should we worship? And yes, there is. Let me read you one of them. In fact, we're going to draw it from Paul's writings to the church in Corinth. The reason we can go to Corinth and find out what Paul said to them is because if there was a church in the New Testament who messed up everything God told them to do, that was the church. I mean everything. Anything that God got, the Lord's Supper, worship, spiritual gifts, speak, you name it, they messed it up. And so Paul had to continually write them. In fact, you may not know this. If not, you're ready for jeopardy now. There were not just two letters to the Corinthian church. There were four. And we only have two of them. So Paul did a lot of, he spent a lot of time straightening out those Christians. Now listen to what he said in, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 37 to 40. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Now listen to that. He said, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, that all things be done, how? Decently and in order. Now why did Paul write that? Now I don't want to write a whole message about this passage, but let me give you three things to think about. Number one, the church in Corinth had a problem with false teachers. They had a problem with people taking their spiritual gifts and misusing them to bring glory to themselves, to boast themselves up. Oh, I can speak in tongues. You can't speak in tongues. You must not be a very good Christian, yada, yada, yada. When they had the Lord's Supper, all the wealthy people would go over there and eat and drink, and, and some would get intoxicated, while the other Christians who were poor and didn't have it, they wouldn't let them participate. They'd cause a split in the church. Paul shows up and says, some of you guys are sick and dying because you're misusing the Lord's Supper. Get your act together and knock it off. Have so he, he, he gives them all this training. What he says right here is this. What I'm telling you is inspired from God. And if you think not, God will show you what it is. Basically saying, what I'm teaching you came from God. Number two, we know from reading Paul's writing to the church at Corinth that all spiritual gifts and everything we do in the church, everything is to edify and build up the church and glorify God. So whatever we do, i.e. dancing or singing or preaching, it is to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit by spiritual gifts that God's given. And it is, it is to edify and build up the church whole and glorify God. Okay? And that applies to everything. So Paul said to them here, he said, 
desire, earnestly desire prophecy. What is that? He said, of all the spiritual gifts you could want, and we don't get to pick our spiritual gifts, is a whole other topic. God gives them to us. He said, if you're going to desire a spiritual gift, desire prophecy. Why? Because teaching is what prophecy is. Prophesying, speaking God's word edifies the whole church. And Paul said, that's the best spiritual gift to have because you can build up the whole church. And then he said, finally, everything that you do, whatever it is, do it orderly uh, in, a, in a fitting way that fits worship and is orderly so you don't, you don't distract people. Now, why did he say don't forbid speaking in tongues? Because in the first century, before the end of the first century, before that spiritual gift ended, there was a gift of speaking in tongues that had a specific purpose as a testimony to Israel, not I don't know how to preach that whole. It, it was a gift that's no longer needed because we have the Bible. Everybody understand that? Amen. We don't need it anymore because we got, we got this. And if God gave somebody the ability to speak in tongues, Paul said, there's got to be an interpreter, and there's not an interpreter, and keep your mouth shut. He didn't say it like that, but that's how I said it. He said, if there's not an interpreter in there, then don't, then don't, don't act like you have spirit, uh, speaking in tongues because everybody else is going to be sitting there looking at you and not know what you're saying which doesn't edify anybody. Because what's the main purpose? Edify the whole body of church. You say, well, that's all wonderful. What does that mean about dancing? Well, I'm going to tell you. Anything that we do in the worship service of the church, number one, has to point people to Jesus. In other words, it has to be about him and not about us. If we, if we worship God personally at our seat, raising up our hands, all that stuff's okay. You can raise up your hands, you can sway around, you can do whatever you want to. That's fine. But don't do it in such a way to cause people around you to look at you. Do it in a way that honors God, okay? Don't do it in a way. I, I, when I was a kid, we used to go to tent meetings. Anybody ever go to those things? Man, they last so long, don't they? I mean, as a kid, I think, it is midnight, I should be home in the bed. What, and how can he preach at midnight? I don't, how can anybody listen at midnight? But it's meant, well, Paul was preaching, it was late, and the guy fell out of the window and died, okay? Somebody's going to fall out of the chair and break their neck. Midnight, one in the morning. Listen, I've been to tent meetings, and while the guy's preaching, somebody gets up and starts running laps around the inside the building. He said, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to run around the building. I don't, I, it, great, I don't know, okay? I wouldn't say he that, because that's his experience. But now I can't hear what the guy's saying because I'm watching him do the 440 around the, you know, around the inside of the building. And that's great. And, I'm not, and, I'm not, and I don't mean to belittle somebody's experience with God. Uh, here's another example. I went to a, another a church one time of a different denomination from Baptist. And I went with this girl's family. And it was, it was a church where when they prayed, everybody prayed at the same time. The whole, I mean, when the preacher prayed, everybody in the congregation prayed out loud at the same time. Well, and that was okay, because I figured God could figure out which one of us was saying what, okay? So I was all right with that. But then about halfway through the sermon, which was pretty good, people got rowdy. And I don't mean rowdy bad. I mean, people started, I mean, lots of people started running around and, and jumping up and down and and doing stuff. And one lady started speaking in tongues and I, I couldn't, and it was over for me because 
I was watching the show. I was watching all the stuff going on. And I'm saying all that to say this. I have seen dancing in church. I've seen it. I've seen it planned in the service. I've seen people dance. And I say this as kindly as I can. I've never seen it done well. I've never seen it where it felt like it was part of what we were doing. Just me? Maybe you've seen it done wonderful. I don't know. I'm just telling you, every time I've seen it done in church, with all good intention, it felt weird, and it looked like it didn't fit. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. If we can figure out how to incorporate dancing in the congregation worship, where it's not a bunch of young ladies in leotards in front of the church jumping up and down, because I've seen that. And I'm thinking, man, they need to put on some clothes. If it isn't some of that stuff, and it really could be incorporated, then good, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. But if it becomes a distraction, and it becomes something that takes our mind off of what we ought to be thinking about, then we probably ought to rethink how we're doing it. What do you think? And it really is that easy. It's not, it's not complicated. We don't have to beat people up over it. We just have to really pray if God so leads us to dance in the church. I don't know if it's the two-step. I don't know if it's the, you know, the do si -do. I don't know what it is. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how David was dancing. He was just doing it with all of his might. I don't know how Miriam and them were dancing. But every time I've seen it in the church, it's not been, it's not been well. You'll find this funny, and I probably shouldn't tell this. If John and Julie are listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to tell you. We went to see some friends one time, and they said, hey, let's go to church. So we go to church with them on Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning. So we go, and when we get there, the church is full, and so we have to sit on the front row. And I don't mind sitting on the front row. I mean, when I went to school, I sat in the front row all the time. But on this morning, they had a, a part of a worship set. I saw it in the bulletin was worship and dance with flags like a football game. I'm visiting. Okay. Where do you think they were dancing? Right there. And I'm sitting right there. I got flagpoles going over my head. <laughs> Sherry and I are, you know. I guess they were they were worshiping the Lord, and I'm okay. I'm okay with it. But um, I guess as the pastor here, I guess what you're waiting on me to say is this: if we ever do some dancing here, it will be well thought out before it happens. All right, <laughs> it'll it will be well thought out, and uh, Jeff will have to convince me. Let me just put it. Let me just leave it at that. So, uh, but don't get all bent out of shape if somebody wants to dance and worship the Lord. You know, they did it in the Bible. And maybe if that's how God moves them to worship, God bless them. I'm, I'm all for it. Don't, you know, don't let our traditions, don't let, don't let our traditions get in the way of if somebody wants to worship, that's fine. Uh, it, but you can rest assured that's not most of our worship sets are probably going to have much dancing in them, okay? Let me, let me finish up with a couple other things that, that the psalmist says here. And I like verse 4 a lot because he says this. He says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. I like all of that verse, man. God, 
Listen, God takes pleasure in his people. That's wonderful. We, I mean, let's just be honest. We don't give God a lot of reason to take pleasure in us, okay? I mean, we, we're pretty much messed up even after we're saved because we're positionally right, but we're struggling every day, and we're just, you know. But it's wonderful that God takes pleasure in us. Why, why is that? What, what, is it, what, what is it that God would take pleasure in us? Well, number one, he's restored a right relationship with him as his children. God doesn't see our sin. Man, amen. God sees us in Jesus. And because he loves his son, guess what? He loves you incredibly. He loves you regardless of everything that's wrong with us or was wrong with us. Why? Because we're in Jesus. And God takes pleasure in his people because he likes to fellowship with us. God is a great heavenly father and he likes it when we talk to him. He likes it when we pray to him and ask him for things. He likes to fellowship with us. How wonderful is it going to be in heaven forever that God likes hanging out with us? I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? God wants to hang out with us. Okay, I'm in. Man, I, I, you know, I want to talk to him and fellowship with him. But God takes pleasure in his people. None more so than Israel. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. God said, they're mine. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Jacob is Israel. Now listen to verse 10. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Ooh, nations better be careful messing with Israel. You know what? Because they're the apple of God's eye. He cares about them. You go messing with him, you got trouble. Because that's the old thing. God said, you're messing with him, you're messing with me apple of God's eye. He takes pleasure in his people. I wrote down some things God enjoys. God enjoys when we worship him. God inhabits the praise of his people. God enjoys our spiritual prosperity when we grow to be more like Jesus. God enjoys our spiritual growth. God enjoys communion with us, fellowship with us. God enjoys blessing us and giving us good things. Then he says this, God will beautify the humble with salvation. Well, that's where it all starts. Humble is, humble is the same idea of meekness. Meekness. Jesus had something to say about meekness, didn't he? Let me read it to you real quick before we close. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what the poor in spirit means? It means someone who recognizes they're spiritually bankrupt and that they need to be saved. That's what that means. That means a, a person who realizes their need of Jesus and meekly, humbly, they come to God to be saved. Jesus said, blessed is that person. Why? Because they get saved. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who go through this life with difficulty and mourning because Jesus said, I'm going to comfort them. Blessed are the meek, here it is, for they shall inherit the earth. Yeah, the world don't think much of meekness right now, especially among Christianity. They vilify us. They, they talk bad about us. But one of these days, you're going to inherit this place, and it'll be brand new, new heaven, new earth. You're going to inherit it. Why? Because you're heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So they can talk about us all they want. But one of these days, this place can be ours. Really, it already is. We're just waiting to possess it. 
the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll be filled. Jesus said, you want righteousness? You want to know truth? And you hunger for it? He said, I give you all you can stand. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecute, and they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. You know what I saw this week? There are groups that keep, that keep lists of Christian entities that they want to make sure can't be successful. That's amazing, isn't it? There are groups who, are, who their whole purpose in life is to hinder the work of Christianity in this country. Jesus said, blessed are those who experience that. Blessed are people who live through that. The last thing we would look at here is this. Verse 5, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Why would he say sing aloud on their beds? You probably can relate to this. Many times when we are overwhelmed with burdens or with sorrows, we water the pillow as we lay in the bed at night because we think about it and our hearts are broken. And Israel watered their pillows with tears many a times in captivity and persecution. God said, no, there'll be singing. There'll be joy. There'll be good sleep. There'll be rest for my people. God said it won't always be that way. And I was reminded of this as I close. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas had had a bad day. They got arrested. They got whipped, beat with a whip. Their backs are bleeding. They get thrown in a jail, chained, sitting in a dungeon, and it's midnight. What would you be doing? You'd be wearing out the hotline to God, wouldn't you? Lord, what in the world is going on here? My back hurts. I'm locked in this dungeon. I'm sitting in the mud. I thought you liked me. What did Paul and Silas do? Boy, they started singing. Victory in Jesus. No, it wasn't written yet. That was a real new song. Then They started singing. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know the rest of that story, don't you? God supernaturally cut them loose, and the jailer was going to kill himself. Paul said, nah, don't hurt yourself. Let me tell you who did this, and the jailer got saved. Hmm. God said, I'm going to take care of my people. Might not look like it right now. Might look kind of rough, but he takes joy in his people. And it uh, won't always be the sorrow. God, psalmist called for Israel to worship God. I think next week we're going to pick up a verse or two down that talks about the sword. That's a neat passage before we finish chapter 150. I hope you come back. Listen, if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, there's a God who loves you and he wants to save you. If you are saved, let's worship God anew every day because his blessings, his mercies are fresh every day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the encouragement it is to our heart. 
God, help us to learn from this psalm of calling Israel to praise. Lord, for certainly, if Israel as a nation was called to praise, certainly your church, your redeemed, the bride of Christ, is called to praise. Lord, if there's someone here tonight who's not saved, I pray right now they would just call out to you and say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Maybe somebody who's watching online, watching the video, Lord, would just call out to you and say, Lord, I need to be saved right now. Save my soul. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing a verse. If I can help you or pray with you, you have a question, you come on the first verse.